Hello and welcome to the Hoosie Podcast with me, Phil. And me, Paul. And on this week's show, we're going to go back to our Target novelisation reviews. And this time we are doing the novelisation of Terror of the Zygons, which in the world of Target is called Doctor Who and the Loch Ness Monster. But not only that, we also have an interview with the uh, composer and DJ Dominic Glynn, who most of you should know who did the uh, theme tune rearrangement for season 23 of Doctor Who. So that's coming up a bit later. But first, as usual, let's have some news. Now, there's, a, there's been a, a, a couple of things happened since we've last been on air, hasn't there? Yep, that's about it. That's about it, that's about it. And I think most of it I've, I've probably read elsewhere or heard elsewhere, and I think we've put up on our Facebook group, certainly the first one that we've, uh, we're going to discuss. Um, one of the things that happened since we were last um, on air was that uh, Peter Capaldi, um, he's stated that he's been asked to stay on for, uh, for Series 11 which we all know is going to be under the stewardship of Chris Chibnall. Um, what do you make of this, Paul? Not surprising. I mean, no. I, I mean, unless Chris Chibnall particularly didn't want him or wanted his own doctor to kick off his series, hmm. I would have thought they'd be on their knees to him asking him to stay well, I would, Yeah, I would have thought so, actually. Um, because, I, yeah, just, just to give some sort of continuity through... I, I mean, I'd like to see because it, it, I think it'll be the first time, well, since the show come back that the we've had a new Doctor uh, or the same Doctor with a new showrunner. I should yeah. say, yeah. So it it would make interesting viewing, I think, just to see what you'd be like under a different showrunner. Because I think it would, but I think it would put might probably got a different spin on things. Who knows? I suspect that might actually now be the thing that might make him stay. I suspect had Stephen Moffat been continuing he may well have called it a day after series 10 he may have done he may have but done. the the only the only hope i'm i'm clinging on to <laughs> is the fact that he might see it as oh this is to be something new you know a new it challenge might be more interesting yeah and i might yes. get some do something different with the character yeah so he may decide to start I and mean, it, it could well be to to what happens in when he actually finally sits down with Chris Chibnall, and they start fleshing out how he sees the series going. Mm. Yeah, it could be. It could be. Yeah, something that 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 could be the, the turning point for him, couldn't mm. it? You know, he could just or, or just what job offers. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing. He I mean, gets in yeah. between that that he would have to turn down to do series eleven. Of course, is always the the major one as well. Exactly. It does always seem a bit weird that sort of as soon as they sort of join the show, they sort of like, okay, sort of like, well, because he actually says um, in the articles, it was actually an interview with the, uh, I think it was with the Independent. Oh no, it was actually on um, on BBC Radio Scotland. Scotland. Yeah, yeah. it's the Independent that sort of reported it. And he says, they've asked me to stay on, so when I'm forced to make that decision, I will make it. So it's a weird, weird choice of words, forced to make that decision. Yeah. Really, it's just I don't know. It's sort of I don't know. Sort of like you say, it's my dream job. I always want to be, you know, I want to be the doctor, and I've got it. And when they actually start working on it, I think they don't quite realize just how hard it is and how time consuming it it is. Was it nine yeah. months of the year or something they they take to make the show? So, 
Yeah, I suspect so. I mean, if they're starting to film in May for the uh, series, series full t- series going out in 2017, then yeah. yeah, you can imagine how long that must take. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think one of the other things we might have missed since we last been away, isn't, hasn't Capaldi more or less confirmed he's going to be in class as well? Um, did no, I, I did not see that. Didn't I read? I th- I'm quite, quite sure I read that. So, I mean, please, you know, don't quote me on this. I mean, I'm quite sure I read that somewhere that he... That he was, he was going to I mean, be. No, in I, it, so. I, I, I can sort of see perhaps there might be a an opening half an hour or so of the first episode. Well, yeah, I don't know how long the episodes last, but you know, for the first episode, he may make an appearance that kicks everything off. Yes, just to introduce the the show and the characters and to give a sense of to put it where to put it in its place, so to speak, and in then, the universe. Yes, yes. that's the universe. Yeah. Get in your place. <laughs> it's going to turn up and say, well, this is a crap idea and I'm off. <laughs> I'll put it in its place. <laughs> oh, dear. For well, God's so- sake, can't I come up with a better spin-off than this? <laughs> well, of course, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll be keeping an eye out on whether... Uh, we will be keeping an eye out, I should say, of whether um, Mr Capaldi will be staying off for Series 11. Uh, let's hope yeah. he does. Fingers crossed that one. Fingers, I suspect yeah, as soon crossed. as... If, if that does get confirmed at any point, I suspect more everyone will know about it. Exactly. Quickly. Well, it's only because we haven't actually done any news for... Oh, blimey. Since February, I don't think. Yeah. <laughs> so so we're quite way behind, and we've missed a few things as well. So um, so forgive us if we've... We might have mixed... Or I might have mixed a few things up in my mind, is what I'm going to say, to be honest. Now, anyway, um, moving on. Now, one of the things that we, we haven't actually previously covered... Um, I don't know why we haven't, really, but um, I think most of you will know now that uh, Netflix in the USA is no longer... Um, well, no longer has the license to, to, to stream Doctor Who anymore. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's affecting the UK. It's still on the UK as far as I'm aware. Um, I don't think it's affected that one. Um, but then again, I don't really use Netflix to watch Doctor Who. No. Too, so I've got the DVD, so who cares? Um, but anyway, it appears now that Amazon Prime um, have uh, picked up the exclusive rights, or exclusively stream Doctor Who um, in the United States. Um, and it says it'll kick off with the first night in the modern series on the 27th of March, which is just gone. It was yesterday. Yes. Yes. Okay, and Series 9 um, and The Husbands of River Song will follow in the autumn this year. Okay, and it says that the show will be available to Prime members for no additional charge. Hmm. Okay. Now, I did actually put something up on our, um, for people, our listeners in Canada. Um, and it almost sounds like yeah. there's, there's been this sort of almost a bidding war for it. It does, really, yeah. Which, which, which is which is got to be good news, hasn't it, Arthur thought. Well, I would have thought so. Surely. I mean, I mean, unless unless we're reading this wrong and Netflix turned around and said, well, we're not showing that rubbish anymore. <laughs> and Amazon Prime, oh, well, go on then, we'll have it then. <laughs> well, it could be the B- maybe the BBC are asking too much for it. Yeah. You don't know. Maybe, and, Amazon, maybe... and Amazon, as the BBC have found with the, 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 the presenters, the former presenters of Top Gear going off, they've got money to throw at anything. Exactly. Which I think is probably might be to uh, the, the previous presenters of Top Gear's detriment, actually. Oh, I, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure they they'd be crying all the way to the bank. Well, I, I, th- I just think about the quality of the show. And I, I mean, it, 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 you know, it has its fans and it has its detractors. And I used to enjoy watching Top Gear. I mean, absolutely no, no bones about that. Um, but it was done under a BBC budget, and you've you've got to be a bit more cleverer with that. And I think the more money you've got, 
creativity sort of goes out the window a little bit. You just sort of like just chuck money at stuff to make it better. It doesn't always, that's not always the case, is it? <laughs> that's why we're turning down the big money for this podcast, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> we, don't, we don't want it to spoil. The, we're keeping it real, Paul. We're keeping yeah. it real. <laughs> now, I was about to say, um, I think in a, a few weeks ago, I did put on, on our Facebook page um, a link to that the Crave TV I've got the exclusive uh, streaming rights for Doc Two in Canada. Yeah, actually, so it looks like the whole of North America's been catered for. <laughs> so there we go. So there we go. So um, I don't know what's happening with the the rest of Netflix across the across the globe. Oh, it's just just yeah. Obviously, there are different rights issues in different areas, isn't there? That's, yeah, there is. Yeah, unfortunately, that's why they're trying to cut down on all the people using um, false information to. Log on to yes, which different... Netflix have now cracked down on. Yeah, that's yeah. why, isn't yeah, it? The, uh, yeah, the proxies that you could use. So. Yeah, yes, unfortunate that unfortunate. So anyway, now on to our last uh, piece of news. Now, sadly, we have to report um, another another sad passing of an actor who's in Doctor Who. Uh, the actress Adrienne Corey um, died at the age of eighty-five, and she played Mina in the Leisure Hive. Which was the first story of uh, season eighteen of, uh, of of Tom Baker's last season of, of Doctor Who. Now um, she's famous more for, for other things apart from Doctor Who. Um, she was in A Clockwork Orange as uh, Mrs. Alexander. Unfortunately, yes, I, I, I don't want to say it. Really. She was in the rape scene, basically of that of that film. So um, yeah, not a guess <laughs> infamous scene, I should say, in an infamous mm. film. Um, she was also in Doctor Zhivago. As well, um, Bunny Lake is missing. Have you seen Bunny Lake is missing? No, that's re- uh, uh, that's with Laurence Olivier. A very very good film about a child right. who goes missing. A very good film. Um, a study in terror, which the Sherlock Holmes, which is actually on the Horror Channel this afternoon, actually. Funny oh. enough, and Revenge of the Pink Panther, she was in as well. So um, she's been in quite a few things, but she's also in um, Moon Zero Two. You ever seen that? No. I bet Mystery Science Theatre have covered that one. It's actually a Hammer film. It was a ha- it was a, a space western set on the moon. Right. So yeah, she was she was in that. So so there we go. But eighty five. That's that's a, a you know that's a, that's a it's a ripe old age. And I say she's been in quite a few things. Another, another Hammer film she was in as well was um, Vampire Circus as well. It was actually quite a good film as well. A, a, a very different film, vampire film, I should say for Hammer. Very different. Mm. But uh, yes. So very very sad. Very very sad. Anyway, um, let's move swiftly on then, because we have, do have time to go to Omega's Tat Corner. You pester me with trinkets! Now, we have one item of tat. Now, this seems very familiar, doesn't it? Yes. I think we, we have covered this before in a previous guise. Yeah, as in the, the just the TARDIS speaker. Yes. It's the TARDIS, TARDIS Bluetooth speaker. Now, this is now... Someone's just got, a, like, a, a, a bottle of Tipex. And it's yeah, now, if you've already bought one of the TARDIS speakers, then you advise you just to go and buy a bottle of Tipex. Yes. <laughs> because now this is the Bad Wolf Bluetooth speaker. Yes, that's all it is. Someone has, has typed or, or, or written Bad Wolf on the side of a Bluetooth TARDIS speaker and, um, and re-released it. Yes. There we go. Um, now I don't actually know um, if there's any price. It appears to be um, done through another site uh, called FameTech, mm-hmm. actually. Now I haven't actually sort of found any. And on there, it's forty nine ninety five US dollars. Dollars, yes. And I can't remember how much the original one was. No, it was such a long time ago now, wasn't it? 
such a long time ago. I suspect ago. the same price. I can't believe. Yeah. I mean, not much more we can say about it, really. It's just been, you know, repackaged as this. And um, and I say it's currently available in the USA and Canada. And we'll well, no, so- interestingly, I've just oh. seen the... Oh, God. I just, I just flicked through that, that website. Yeah. And whether it's the same size one or not, hmm. the TARDIS portable Bluetooth speaker... Yes. ...is 119 Whoa! $0.98. I'm quite sure it wasn't that expensive before. <laughs> but obviously, the other we've been telling people to do it the wrong way around. We've been telling people if you've got the other speaker, just get Tipex and write Bad Wolf on it. Yeah. But actually, you should be buying this and trying to scrub the Bad Wolf off of it. <laughs> <laughs> if you just want an ordinary one. <laughs> Oh, God. Well, this is, um, it will soon be available in the UK and Australia, by all accounts. So, so, so there you go. Yes, yeah, so if you if you got um, $49, or nearly $50, really, um, knock yourselves out, is what I'm going to say. Yeah. Knock yourselves out. So, um, that's it for Tat Corner, isn't it? It is. We added one thing, just one thing, just one thing that sort of caught our eye this week. Um, yeah, that is a bit of a, that is a bit of a rip-off, I think, that one. But there you go, there you go. Anyway, um, so that's it for the news, that's it for Tap Corner. Um, but coming up next is our um, interview with Dominic Glynn and our review of uh, the Titan organisation of the uh, Terror of the Zygons. So for another week then, that was the news. Right then, everybody. Um, now, before we get into our review of Terror of the Zygons, um, first of all, we're going to listen to uh, an interview that I did with uh, Dominic Glynn earlier this week, and uh, we're just sort of chatting to him about his uh, about his time on Doctor Who, amongst amongst other things. So we're going to listen to that right now. I'm joined now by composer and DJ, uh, probably most best best known for uh, the uh, rearrangement of the Doctor Who theme from season twenty three. It's Dominic Glynn. Hi there, Phil. Nice to be with you. And you, and you. It's very, thanks very, very much for uh, for joining us today. Um, now I understand you just got back from Regeneration Who in Baltimore. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's quite a quite a big, a big sized uh, convention in Baltimore. Yeah, um, sort of between halfway between Baltimore and Washington DC. Mm. Yeah, great, great convention actually. Really good. Um, we had two doctors. We had Colin Baker. We had Peter Davison. Uh, we had quite. a quite a lot of the crew from the 60s show were there it was like wendy padbury and um annika wills and um uh deborah watling uh, fraser hines um it was quite a big big team actually it was good oh, yes yeah. so I, I did have a, have a look through the um through the list actually of the guests and uh yeah it's, it's quite a good turnout actually yeah yeah it is and everybody was really friendly and it was a yeah it was a great convention really nicely run and everything so uh yeah, fantastic. I'd recommend it to anyone who's over in that part of the world and you know looking for a good convention on the East Coast. It's it's a great one, you know. Well, so the only sort of convention I've been to outside the UK has been Gallifrey One. Is that one you've you've done as well in the past? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Gallifrey One's fantastic as well. It is, um, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it really is. You know, it's, everybody's there, and it's uh, yeah, it's, it's big. Um, but so this is a bit smaller. But some people like it smaller as well because you get more opportunity to maybe chat with guests and all that sort of thing. So you know, it depends on what you're after. But it's, it was a great convention. Everybody enjoyed it. There's no doubt about that. How, how do you feel they sort of the conventions in, in sort of like stateside compared to the ones in the UK? Do you th- do you feel there's a difference as a as a guest? Do you feel there's a difference? Well, there, nowadays there don't seem to be so many UK conventions that last more than the day. So most hmm. UK conventions are a sort of a, a Saturday. 
Um, and so they, I suppose in a way, you don't get quite so much happening at them because you obviously can't cram that much in. Whereas over the over in the states, they they tend to be a three day affair, hmm. um, and there's a you know big variety of panels, all sorts of different things. You know, some of it's quite obscure. Some of the um, discussions that come up in these uh, <laughs> U.S. panels, it's it's fantastic though. It's really interesting. Um, and you know, from my point of view, I'm doing the, the live music uh, set now when I do conventions. So yes, I'm yes. I'm playing in the evenings usually at um, you know in the in the main panel room um, and doing a live gig so again it's nice if people it's not like a one day event everybody's got to go home you know if it's on the Saturday night or something people may well be there all weekend staying in the hotel so well for those of us who sort of weren't able to get there what what is your sort of your set on on the Saturday evening what what sort of thing well, do you entertain the crowds with yeah I mean uh, uh, where to start well I, I started talking to Gallifrey one I started doing this when I went to Gallifrey one in 2014 and I thought, well, what can I do as a composer that's slightly different from the other guests? You know, mm. just trying to be sort of slightly more interesting than maybe I f- sometimes feel I am. So I, I thought, well, I'll, I'll do something actually live with the music. So I, I did a remix of my uh, theme arrangement, the 1986 uh, theme arrangement. Yes, I've heard it. I've that. heard it. Yeah, You've heard it? Well, I did that on stage and, and sort of remixed it live. Mm. Just that one piece and it, and it went down really well everybody was saying oh that's fantastic where can we buy it and I was just saying well you, you can't buy it I've just did it here <laughs> um, and but then that sort of got me thinking lots of people were interested so I um I put together an EP of uh, four remixes hmm. and I, I say remixes because they are basically using all the elements from my original theme um, but completely updated and you know I spent a lot of time particularly in the 90s doing a lot of dance music um, and electronic techno that, yeah. that kind of music and I, I was combining elements of all that with um, with the Doctor Who music um, and that that sort of came about because I, I kept getting DJs and, and music producers asking for if they could possibly have some samples of my music from Doctor Who because they wanted to incorporate it into tracks Excellent. And I, I did give it to a few people, and I was thinking, well, I don't know why I don't do this myself, really. So, yeah, so I did that one track, did the EP, and then I think it was, I'm trying to think which convention it was. But anyway, I started doing a live set, I think it was Long Island Who, actually, doing a live set of um, also music from my incidental music um, yes. episodes of you know incidental music. And then, so it's it's basically it's grown. So I do a bit of remixing of the theme, which I do live, and incorporating elements of electronic dance music and sort of underground techno, combining that with um, original samples and sounds from from the Doctor Who stories that I worked on. So you know, I get up there now on stage and do bits from Dragonfire and stuff from the Happiness Patrol and you know Survival and all that kind of thing. Um, brought sort of bang, brought bang up to date, you know. Excellent. So, I mean, um, you sort of talk about sort of techno and electronic music. I mean, what what was what were your influences actually when you when you were young? What what did little Dominic listen to growing uh, up? <laughs> well, blimey, uh, you know, big big range. I mean, the, the 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 dance music side of things sort of came later. I mean, when I was growing up, uh, much younger, I used to love funk. Um, it was a big big part of my growing up, the sound of my growing up. So I loved mm. funk music, and obviously that was, you know, dance music. Um, always liked electronic music, always loved film music, you know, things like John Barry was always a big 
uh, yes. big influence on yeah. me and all these Bond themes. And, and also, for some weird reason, I've always loved TV themes. You know, it sounds ridiculous because that's what I do now. But, you know, I always love things like music to um, some of those old 60s um, sort of ITC spy series, you know, the oh, Saints. And, they had some fantastic theme yeah, tunes, didn't they? They yeah. were the best. They were the best. You know, and I used to think, oh, that's fantastic to, to sort of sum up the whole program in that that 45 second opening theme or whatever you know it was, it was fantastic and looking back at those programs now sometimes the theme was the best part <laughs> sometimes the bit that really stands out and still to, you know, stands the test of time you know um so that was growing up um i was also into little bits of i don't know bits of prog rock maybe a bit of new wave a bit of new romantic a bit of it so a little bit of everything all mm. going on so i was but then i really sort of heavily fell in love with dance music in the early 90s so you know some of the more underground stuff um partly because i i started recording some of it myself and and sort of hooked up with a dj on kiss fm called colin dale who used to be a, the main techno dj on on kiss fm and he played a lot of my stuff and um you know i sort of kind of got involved in that scene um and this was simultaneously while i was um you know writing other music for tv so it was all, all going on at the same time basically so so doing these concerts now at the who conventions is great because for, for in many ways it's it's combining the different aspects of my you know my musical sort of career really mm, yeah so what, what? How did you get into writing sort of um, the, like the TV side of things? What what was your route into that? Uh, well, it was a, the most ridiculously direct route into writing music for TV. Is I mean, I used to be a keyboard player in a band. I'm not a trained musician, but I was a keyboard player in a band, and the band was not doing terribly brilliantly. But I knew that I really wanted a career as a as a musician, you know, mm. preferably writing music, which is what I really like doing. So I just wrote lots of letters up to people. Bearing in mind this was the early 80s, mid-80s. Um, I wrote, physically wrote letters, you know, yeah. typed them on a typewriter. And um, <laughs> I know, that's how long ago it was. I was going to say, yeah, I wonder if the, yeah. the, the younger listeners out there will know what that is. <laughs> that's right, yeah. That's, well, you know, go and Google it. And, um, yeah, so I'd, I'd send these letters in to producers of TV programmes. And naturally, one of the main, the main users of electronic music, which is what I was doing, one of the main users was Doctor Who. So, you know, I made sure that John Nathan Turner, who was the producer at the time, um, you know, got a letter. And I, I recorded some demos on cassette wow. uh, of the sort of music that I could do. Yeah. And I, I just sent it in to, to John Nathan Turner. And lo and behold, he was good enough to write back. And um, after asking for another demo, I think he asked for a couple of demos, um, he then pretty much said, yeah, yes, I'd like you to write for Doctor Who. So I was sort of like bowled over because I wasn't really ex- expecting to to get a response like that. I don't know why I was doing it, not, not expecting to get a response. <laughs> I don't know, I just thought, you know, it's got, give it a try, you know. Yeah, yeah, and it paid off handsomely. It paid off. Yes. Yeah, because yeah, he was very, very um, open to getting... Um, you know, young young people to work on the new people, new talent, that mm. sort of thing. So you know, all power to him, really. So, did he have any when you when you came to sort of doing your your rearrangement of the, of the main theme? I mean, what did he give you any sort of pointers on what he wanted, or did you get like a, a free reign and say, um, you know, "There you go"? <clears throat> well, bearing in mind that wasn't what I that wasn't the job I went for, if you know what I mean. I, mm. I was writing to him asking if I could write incidental music for Doctor Who. That was the job I was uh, trying to get. Oh, right. Okay. And in fact, that's the job that he first offered me. So um, 
when, after sending these demos in, he said, yeah, I'd like you to write four episodes of the new season, mm. um, which was after the long break when it had been off for um, 18 months or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, halfway through Colin Baker's reign. Um, so so that was the first thing. I, I begun by writing music for the first uh, story, which was yeah. Trial, of, Trial of a Time Lord. But then, um, after he'd asked me to do that, and before I'd actually started working on the programme, I think, um, he then rang up out of the blue and said, oh, would you like to have a go at rearranging the theme while you're at it? <laughs> so, I, so, so I, you know, obviously, I, you, know, you, you jump at the chance when you're given that opportunity. You know, I, I said, yeah, of course. Um, and, uh, yeah, did he give me... Well, he did. He gave me a few pointers, which I really, I really never normally do this normally i always follow the brief you know if you're given a job in tv or whatever they would normally brief you sometimes quite tightly what mm. they want other times loosely because they don't know what they want <laughs> but when they when they brief you tightly you normally stick to it otherwise you're never going to get a job again you know yeah yeah um but in this particular case i i did ignore him a little bit because he said something like he wanted it to be a little bit more Disco-y, I think is, you know, something along those lines. I mean, disco-y, I thought, what, Doctor Who doesn't work as a disco, <laughs> right? Oh. You know, and, and I, by that point, I was thinking of, you know, like Bee Gees or something. Yeah, exactly, like, yeah. Well, Donna you know, Summer all, or something. Yeah. yeah, it seemed terribly out of date because I was thinking, hey, we're in the hip 80s now. Exactly, know, yeah. We're way past disco, <laughs> man. And um, so I, but I, so I think he was sort of saying, give it a go, trying to put drums in it or, or, or at least, you know, um, disco rhythm which mm. I, just, I just didn't really want to do that to it partly because also my um the sort of thing what i attracted me to doctor who was its weirdness yeah and i always liked the fact that doctor who um bestraddled a line between um very odd very weird and very funny um and it was that was what i loved about doctor who and i always sort of lent towards the spooky side of Doctor Who as being my favourite sort of um, episodes and so given the opportunity to work on it I didn't really want to sort of go down a road that I wasn't into myself so I tried to really uh, do a spooky version of the Doctor Who theme rather than a disco version <laughs> um, although almost bizarrely by the, by the time we get to the year 2014 I then do a remix for the Gallifrey One um, convention and it has kind of got it's got a straight kick drum going through it, and it, it is has, a dance, yes. it's a dance track, you know. But in <laughs> 1985, when um, John Nathan Turner, maybe it was just going into '86 when he just asked me to do that, there was no such thing as house music, techno didn't exist, so the concept of doing something like that was almost out of our minds. You know, nobody had created that thought pattern where you could do a, a credible dance track that would combine electronics like the Doctor Who theme with, you know, with with a dance track, so I say this was quite a few years before. And that's, that wasn't that long before Acid House, was it? Because that was sort of quite well, like Oasis, was, wasn't it? Yeah, that was kind of just before. This was just before that, basically. So Acid House was kind of starting to happen around the late eighties. Yeah. Um, but but I don't think Acid House would have been on John Nathan Turner's um, <laughs> horizon anywhere. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. So uh, have you, I was yeah. saying, have, you, have you ever been tempted to go full on disco? You sort of like you know, sort of uh, privately, sort of no, for no one's ear, no one else's ears, just sort of. Uh... Uh, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, I have, you know, obviously, I've gone full on techno because I've done a lot of that. Yeah. But, um, yeah. But uh, no, you know, not just 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 for the sheer hell of it or something. You know? <laughs> Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So at the time when you were sort of working on um, working on the show, did you have any inkling of what was what was going on behind the scenes? And, and I say from up above at the BBC as well. Uh, not not a huge amount. I mean, I'd worked with you know the person I worked closest with was always the director. Mm. So um, particularly being a freelance composer, I was working out of my home. You know, literally, I was working out of a little bedroom at the top of my house. Um, so I only went, I went into the BBC to, uh, initially to talk to John Nathan Turner and to, you know, meet a few people. Um, then I would get a script. Um, and then I would, most of my meetings after that point would be with the director, um, and with, uh, Dick Mills, who was doing the special sound and we go to the yeah, radio yeah. workshop to talk it over and look at each episode and write stuff down. Um, so really all I knew was what gossip i might have heard from people who gossiped <laughs> so so maybe i mean one or two directors were more gossipy than others so i do remember getting you know odd, odd behind the scenes tales of what was going on but i didn't really know i didn't know anything about it. i know there was a big kerfuffle going on between um john nathan turner and eric sayward who's the script editor at the time when i when i started mm. but first of all i never met eric sayward so i had no idea of any of that really and only Right at the end of a trial of a time, the trial of a time Lord season, did it become clear? Somebody told me that there was a hassle with the um, with the script editor, and you know, and I heard all the story about how they had to get Pip and Jane Baker in at the last minute, five to midnight on the day before it was going to be <laughs> shot or whatever. Yeah, and, they really um, got dropped into it those two, didn't they? They really did. Yeah, yeah. They, they they got a reputation for writing things incredibly quickly under great pressure. Um, which sadly did result sometimes in episodes that perhaps weren't Doctor Who's finest moments. But, um, but yeah, so I didn't really know a huge amount about it. And I certainly, I don't think any of us knew Colin was going, one thing like that. It was, it was, um, it was very much a, sh- a surprise to everybody involved, I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, the other thing as well, I mean, I mean, you wrote the incidental music for the sort of last ever story of the classic mm. series, didn't you? I mean, I, I suppose at the yeah. time you didn't know that was going to happen either, did you? Honestly, Phil, I don't know. I, I'm sure this is why I've been never asked, never been asked to go back on the show again because I, I've just, I'm responsible for killing off so many things. I, I killed off the whole show in 1989. Yeah, I did the last episode, Survival. Yeah. And uh, but I also killed off, as a result, Sylvester McCoy. Well, he did come back briefly, didn't he? But um, uh, I killed off Sophie as Ace. Um, I killed off um, Bonnie Langford as Mel. I killed <laughs> off Colin Baker because I did his last one. Um, I think I did uh, Anthony Ainley as the Masters last one. So I, I was always doing the last episodes of all sorts of people and characters and, as it turns out, the whole programme. Um, oh, dear. So, so, yeah. so, so was that the last regeneration who in Baltimore? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, God, don't say that. <laughs> no, it's the last of your podcast. Yes, I was so, yeah. <laughs> so but after that, I mean... Um, did, what what happened to to you after that? Did you just go back to sort of like doing the sort of back to your music, or was it was well, it an, an route into other TV work at the same time? Yeah, and I was lucky because Doctor Who got a name. Um, hmm. I mean, at the time, it wasn't the most highly regarded program, which was in some ways was a bit of a uh, in some ways it was an obstacle to getting work because it didn't have this reputation it's got now. You know, everybody hmm. thinks of it as a great institution. Then people were thinking it was a bit tired and they wanted to move on and nobody wanted to be associated with it. A lot of people, a lot of people who worked on Doctor Who then were allocated Doctor Who. Do you know what I mean? If they yeah. worked at the BBC and they were, they were staff, they kind of didn't choose to work on Doctor Who or anything like that. They just 
got it by default because that that was what was needed in that department. Somebody from sound needed to go. Nowadays, it tends to be that everybody that works on the show absolutely loves it. You know, they're they're fans of old, or you know, they're just really into it. Yeah, yeah, Uh, they just want to be part of it, don't they? yeah, Yeah, yeah. And I was kind of was one of that kind of generation where I just wanted to be part of it. I was a you know quite a big fan of it growing up. Mm. Um, and you know so I suppose so yeah so it helped the fact that although some people turned their noses up at Doctor Who other people saw it as being the sort of legendary thing that it was so I did get some work as a result of having done Doctor Who so almost as soon as um, the show finished um, although I have to say we didn't know it had finished this is the usual thing it just it was we were never told it's cancelled and we don't need you anymore we just were never told it was coming back you know what yeah. i mean it was like we just never got another call to say yeah would you like to do another episode so it faded away rather than suddenly momentously coming to an end it's all a little bit anticlimactic yeah way, isn't yeah it? very much yeah. so but so, uh, no i i got other work and almost as soon as it finished i was asked to write um some production music uh production library music for um for chapel recorded music library mm. and um and that kind of took off and and i've done that sort of thing ever since which is pretty much making music for all sorts of tv shows and film and radio and advertising and everything so it ends up music that i write now ends up all over the place literally all around the world sometimes just a little snippet of it it might be a little one minute piece of music or something is in the background of tv ad or it might be the theme to a you know, a European drama series, or it could be a you know American comedy, or it's all over the place basically. Yeah. What's, but what's, it's quite it's quite anonymous. I was going to say it's quite anonymous, so, <laughs> so I do it, but nobody knows it's me. No, yeah, exactly. What's what's the the strangest thing you've been asked to write for? Blimey. Well, because hmm. like you, you, it's quite a, a large sort of spectrum of of, of um, sort of media you sort of cover there, sort of adverts and TV yeah. films and video games yeah. as well. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, mostly, see, I don't get asked to write for the thing, which is the end product. So if the end product is a, a TV series, most of my work doesn't involve actually working for the person that's making the TV series. I, I write the music like pre-written music really and Mm. um so the tv program no matter how odd it is or advert or whatever um just selects that piece of music that i've written and then it gets used and and you know if i'm lucky it's it's a theme and it gets repeated a lot or something or if it's you know it could be just i don't know it could be just something like a sunday evening country file program or something they just need a bit of music to go with a shot of a a field of wheat or something (laughs) who knows what it is it could be anything um so I don't know what the weirdest thing I've actually been commissioned to do is. So nothing, nothing too weird. I had a lot of music in an advert for Vanish Washing Powder once. All right, okay. It's not weird. <laughs> not, not weird, weird but... exactly. But it's got absolutely no credibility whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, does it still? I mean, I sort of came back to Doctor Who again. I mean, does it still? Does it amaze you that you know? I mean. The last time you worked on like the TV series, as you say, was nineteen eighty nine, and here we yeah. are. You're still talking about it. Does it? Does it? Yeah. Does it amaze I mean, you that you're still still here now talking about it? Yeah, because I mean, it's I knew obviously, obviously it had a big following at the time, and they had conventions while I was working on the show, and I went to conventions in the eighties. But I don't think I would have thought if it had ended in nineteen eighty nine, which I didn't know it was going to, that there would be I'd be going to conventions in America in two thousand and sixteen. I, yeah, I don't think anyone foresaw that really. Um, I'm not surprised because I just think it's an awesome 
concept for a TV series, you know, that, that it, could, it literally could go on forever. There is nothing else like it, is there? No, nothing else like it, no. And I, no. I don't know why they... I don't really know why they stopped it. Um, you know, for the brief period it wasn't on TV. Well, not that brief, I suppose. Um, other than it allowed technology to catch up with the imagination a bit. So they, the, the, oh, in, during, yeah. during the gap, they were able to create a, a lot of technology that enabled it when it came back for it to look a bit more like a, an expensive TV show. You know, that's that's the only thing. But, yeah. but they, they didn't know that was going to happen. No, they don't. Well, no, no plans that, do they? No, so, no, no, exactly. So, I mean, you, you said earlier that you were growing up, you were a fan of the show. I mean, what, what was your era? Really well, um, my first doctor was Patrick Troughton. Mm-hmm. Um, I was too young for William Hartnell. I think I have very early memories of, uh, well, I wasn't allowed to watch it basically because it used to give me bad dreams. But I have a, <laughs> I have a, uh, a vague, vague early memory of watching. I think it's Power of the Daleks, which is the one with the the, in, the Dalek insides on a conveyor belt, sort of. You know, That's being, right. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. So I do vaguely, vaguely remember that. But I, my, I suppose, I suppose, yeah, late Patrick Troughton into John Pertwee was my real sort of regular Who watching. Yeah, I think, I think, yeah, I think my mind was um, sort of Pertwee to begin right, with, right, right, uh, and then obviously Tom Baker's in the seventies. So that was that was the the, the big thing really. But yes, yeah, um, yeah. Um, I think that. I mean, do you remember sort of like when you when you watch the show? It's one thing that sort of. Um, Appeal that sort of happened to me when I was watching because I grew up for years with the um, sort of like the, the the theme through sort of Tom Baker's era, and then when it got to season eighteen, yeah, and John Nathan Turner took it, it went to a full electronic. Well, you you describe it as a fully electronic score. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and to me, that was a massive shock after years of the same theme tune. Um, yeah. Now, growing up, sort of liking sort of like that electronica, did you think, ah, oh, now this is this is for me? Now, did you did you feel that or when you say electronic, I mean the theme tune. Itself. It always has been electronic, hasn't it? But it, yeah, was, it was yeah. more um, like a more sort of synthesizer. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the original, yeah, the original version, of course, uh, Delia Derbyshire and Dick Mills is all done pre-synthesizer. Yeah, so it was yeah. done with oscillators and tape loops and you know um, a lot of uh, ingenuity. Yeah, um, yeah, but Peter Howell's version, which I, I do love, Peter Howell's version. Yeah, as yes, you, as you rightly say was pure synthesizer. Um, it was inevitable. That's that's the way things moved on, really. Um, but as I say, I never really expected to be rearranging the theme tune. It was never something I considered. You know? No, no, I, I, I dare say not actually. No. what you said, but uh, <clears throat> so I mean, really, what would you? I mean, if anybody out there listening who wants to sort of get into um, sort of composing stuff for, for television or adverts or films or whatever, yeah, uh, I know you said back in the day it was easy just to to write in, just wrote letters. Yeah. and that, yeah, um, I mean, what advice would you give people now who want to sort of get their foot in the door? Yeah, I've been talking about that a bit to a few people recently. I mean, I um, I tend to advise people if they haven't already started doing this, I, I tend to say steer clear of doing courses. To, to be honest, don't, don't bother with doing music technology courses or anything like that. Use the money that you'd spend on a on a nine thousand pound a year course mm. to to buy yourself some really good equipment and just experiment at home with it uh, to learn how to make tracks. Watch YouTube videos to learn how to do things. Read the read the manual uh, and just commission yourself to write lots of music. So imagine that somebody was giving you a, a task to do. 
mm-hmm. and then just do it. So nothing beats just doing it. You know, people can spend three years following a, a curriculum, telling them how to do stuff and come out at the end of it and they don't really know how to do it. Um, the best way of doing it, you know, if you look at a lot of the music, I say I was really into techno in the 90s, that the the innovative electronic music that came out of people in the 90s who had never studied anything to do with music t- technology. They had just experimented with their samples and experimented yeah. with their computers and they'd come up with really interesting music. That's what I think people need to do. They need to experiment. They need to uh, focus so that if you want to write music for TV, don't just write a piece of generic music that could be anything. Write a piece of music that you, in your head, see as being the theme to a science documentary or or background music in a in a cop drama or or music to accompany um, skiing or something in a on Sky Sport or something. You know, really commission yourself and research listen to what music is used in those type of programs and just try and do something you know in in that kind of vein and and if it doesn't sound professional to you it won't sound professional to anyone else so don't don't send anything out to people until you think it sounds professional um and yeah that that's the general advice don't waste too much time studying it waste an awful lot more time producing music <laughs> and he won't be wasting it because ultimately even though the first pieces you make may not be good enough if you keep making music the more and more you do the better and better it will become um and i you know i think within three years if that's how long a three-year course is you'll be producing far better music like that than you would just sort of slavishly following the, the a curriculum that's set out by a teacher who may or may know not what they may or may not know what they're doing Wise words. <laughs> Wise words. That's it. Just get out there and do it is what you're yeah, yeah, basically, basically just get out there and do it. Summing that up in one sentence, just get out there and do, do it. it. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Now, um, just before we wrap things up, uh, Dominic, um, <clears throat> I say, where can people sort of find your music out there in, in the World Wide Web? Okay. Well, if you uh, if you look for me, I'm, I, there's a lot of my music on SoundCloud. So if you just look for Dominic Glynn on SoundCloud, um, you should find me. Uh, also, I'm on Facebook. So seek me out through facebook and i can give you links as, as well if you can't find me on soundcloud or anything like that okay. um also my my gallifrey remixes and my ravelox remixes which are the the theme tune remixes and the uh incidental stuff uh, uh respectively they're available on itunes and amazon and, and spotify even or all the usual digital download sources of music so um yeah i'm, a, I'm around to google me Excellent stuff. Excellent. Well, Dominic, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. It's been absolutely fantastic. And uh, thanks very much. That's all right. Thanks, Phil. Nice to speak to you. And to you. Take care, then. Cheers. Wow. Thanks very much, Dominic. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yes, thank you. That was um, very, very good of you to uh, donate your time to us, our, our, little, our little podcast. So, um, but there you go. So, um, yeah, but all the um, links that Dominic mentioned in, at the end of the interview there, uh, you can find links to his, um, to his work and, um, on our um, show notes. Okay. So, um, coming up now then is our review of target novelization of terror of the zygons or doc two and the loch ness monster to give it its uh, its proper name let's, let's be yeah. right if we're let's be right if we're book. gonna do it yes yes um i can't remember whose turn it is to go first actually um i think it's mine it's yours it's gonna be interesting it? i'm okay <laughs> 
Um, do, do you want to kick it off, or do you want me to? Um, well, yeah, go ahead. If, you, if you want to kick it off, I'll just kick it off with the, by, by saying the fact that, actually, when I'm reading this, uh, I hadn't actually seen Terror of the Zygons on DVD. I'd had the DVD for a while and just hadn't got round to watching it because I knew we was going to be doing it as a book review. Yeah. Um, so I don't think I'd actually seen Terror of the Zygons since it was originally broadcast. Oh, okay. Um, and it then occurred to me that I must have now read the book... I must have then read the book twice in between the two viewings of it. All oh, right, okay. Because I must have borrowed Doctor Who and the Loch Ness Monster from school library when I was about 11. <laughs> right. Um, and completely forgot I'd borrowed it hmm. until it was suddenly announced when I was about 15. <laughs> <laughs> so you were clearing out your flat the other week. <laughs> no, so it was announced in, in form class. <laughs> right. There were some people who hadn't returned books. <laughs> so it then sounded like the 15-year-old me had borrowed Doctor <laughs> I mean, why they suddenly realised that I still had this book, I don't know where it was. Well, they're on the on the ball there, weren't they? <laughs> Blimey, four years until to catch up with you. I they weren't going to find me. <laughs> it just goes to show, Paul. I'd still be it off, it'd be like student loan. <laughs> just goes to show, mate, you can't beat the system. system. they get you in the end. Oh, dear. It's a fair cop, but society is to blame. <laughs> oh, crikey. Well, um, well this, this book, as, as Paul should know, because he had it for four years, um, is, this was... <laughs> I don't think um, I did, honestly. I don't think I did, I don't know. <laughs> I think they chose a clerical error there. <laughs> well, this is another novelisation from Terence Dix, um, based on the original script by Robert Banks Stewart. Yes. Um, and as we as we said uh, when we announced we were going to do this a few weeks ago, we, we we're doing this in tribute to, to Robert Banks Stewart, who, who died recently, um, yeah. because this is one of the the all time classics of Doctor Who, isn't it? Yes, it really is, and just one one of one of the all time classic. Monsters as well. Yes, it? indeed, and has been brought back rather successfully lately as well, actually, in the new series. Um, so getting on to the book, this was um, released in January 1976, uh, and then again it was republished under the original title in 1993, which had a different cover. It didn't have the, the Chris Achilleos uh, cover, it had, 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 a, had a different one. Um, but on the whole, this is another cracking Terence Dix novelisation, isn't it? It is. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it is a good story. There's, there's no question about that. Yeah. What, what is actually interesting, the most interesting thing I find with these, but when I because I hadn't watched the episode for, I hadn't watched the TV thing for so long, hmm. it's actually trying to guess where the cliffhanger is. <laughs> yes, which, 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 I, in some of these novel, which in some, most of the novelizations is quite obvious. Yeah, you actually realise when you're reading the book, there's a lot of the Doctor and, pe- and other people in peril. That you would think were the obvious cliffhanger, and, and then they, they weren't. weren't. No, like you know, you've, you've got the cliffhanger being Sarah on the telephone, mm. rather than them Which being I've, locked in the decompression chamber. Well, I've got to say the, the 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 Sarah on the telephone is one of the all-time jumps, isn't it? With the Zygon yeah. looming up, but you know the look on its face, it, it's. That is one of the classic things. That's one of the things I can remember from when I was a kid. I know we're sort of moving off away from the target novelisation at the moment, but but I know what you mean, though. There, there are so many things you could have as a cliffhanger, isn't it? Like, even Harry being shot yeah, could be used as a cliffhanger. 
there, there, there's there's lots in the story actually that yeah. uh, you realise quite when you're reading the book like that and you're sort of thinking you this in the back of your mind where it is you realise yeah. actually how much because a lot of a lot of the Doctor Who stories do tend to just drift along till the cliffhanger, especially especially episodes two and three. Yes, of of, of four part series. Or episodes two, three, four, and five. Or six <laughs> um, so, so normally you, it's, it's quite obvious, and and they're quite slow paced, and you get a bit. But this actually, because there is so much happening in this story, yeah, and backwards and forwards in different locations, it, it you did realise actually, yeah, this is actually quite a fast paced story. Oh, it is. It really is. There's so much happening in this. It's it's unbelievable, and I, I, that's why I love it. To be honest, and the book doesn't let you down either. No, Eternal Six doesn't really change a lot to this. He's made a few, a few adjustments. Um, if you if you sort of start off with the beginning, with the opening scene, is the same as on the on the televised version is the attack on the on the oil rig. Yeah. Now in the book, he does say there's there's a dark shape in the water, which in the TV you don't get to you don't see at all. No. No. Wisely, wisely. When you see, it'd be yes. better if they could have just had a dark shape for. For the monster, really, wouldn't it? In the TV series, it would have done. It would have done. Yeah. Um, but then the, the the character Monroe, which the the person that Harry finds stumbling um, a lot along the road later on, um, you actually sort of get. He actually jumps off the railings, doesn't he? He jump. He he, he jumps overboard, which in the in the TV yeah. you don't see. So, um, which I still like. I still like that effect in the TV version. I just like that the the all rig thing. I just thought it looked quite good for its day. Um, Oh, I mean, yeah, it's it yeah. quite, yeah. I think I'll, yeah. Done from that, and yeah, you just think it, they, they didn't go, he didn't go far from the Scottish theme, though, did he? Because he, obviously that character's not. I don't think that character's actually named, is he, in the TV? No, I don't. So, I so, can't so he's jock, he's jock calling Willie. I mean, <laughs> then it wasn't really. Well, even I mean, actually, I've got to say that you know, the dialogue um, in, the, in the in the opening paragraphs in that um, it, it is still that very much stereotypical Scotsman. It's a aye, and even sort of the, the TV version, you know, you know, getting a delivery of haggis. Yeah. Otherwise, the men are going to mutiny if they don't get their haggis. You know, it's sort of. I would have thought more. It, it would have been more appropriate if they said, you know, um, they were mutiny. They haven't got their latest consultant of whiskey. Yeah. You know, being you know being stuck on an oil rig, they want to get so <laughs> blind, drunk, rather than stuff themselves stupid with a sheep well, stomach. I, I, so. I suppose the argument was that the cook wasn't a Scotsman. So they weren't getting. <laughs> yeah, but even then, even the Daleks. All... But the, I think but I the Daleks are high and all that. Yeah, you know. <laughs> in, in a, I'd have, I probably wouldn't have been bothered about the taste of the food if I had plenty of whiskey. <laughs> no, me neither. So, yeah, mate. I take your point. Yes. <laughs> I've only had haggis once, and I did quite like it actually. So, uh, if you once you get over the you know the look of the sheep stomach, it's it's actually quite nice. So anyway, um, but then it's sort of it, it, we go to the when we first see the Doctor. And Harry and Sarah. Now, the book opts to keep in the missing scene, doesn't it? Yes. Which is now on the DVD, or you get the, the uh, director's cut of, of episode one, which is where the TARDIS lands then disappears. Um, the Doctor has to go back and fix, which is which is kept in the book. Um, I don't know why, because I can see why they cut it out of the out of the TV version, because it adds nothing really, does it? Um, only. Only because it explains him going back and changing. But then, with the TV version, he, he just 
he's wearing he's the just ta- he's, just, he's just there, he's just wearing a tam of shanty. Yeah, they're yeah. just in Scott. I mean, I suppose it does sort of set up the fact of the Harry and Sarah Jane not knowing, not quite believing that they the doctors actually brought them back to Earth. Yes, yeah, and just what it's like to be um, a companion in the TARDIS, which sort of then makes the ending more of a, a reasonable ending to it, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. And the other thing as well, because you're talking about the, the Doctor sort of changing, not his cubby, you lose it, he puts on a tartan scarf and the, the Tam and everything. But he he keeps that, because there's a, there's a line later on in the book, he does keep the tartan scarf on. Yeah. Did you, did you notice that? It's quite late in the book. It mentions about the tartan scarf around his neck, but in the in the TV version, he quickly swaps back to the normal multicolored. Um, yeah, effort so again, he hands he? he comes out the TARDIS, and I wonder what he'd handed first of all in mm. the, when watching the clip, actual clip. So he hands the it's his hat and this with the scarf stuffed in it. Yes, he hands to Harry. And yeah, obviously, then you see him wearing that. Harry wearing Harry, that. Yeah, wearing the scarf and Sarah wearing the hat. First, yeah, when they, when they next appear. Yeah. So yeah, it doesn't really add a lot. I mean, it's, I mean, it's nice that it's included in the book, but I can see I can see why they cut it because it doesn't really, you know, for you know for pacing issues, I, I suppose it would it doesn't really do much, does yeah. it? To be honest, but um, but of course, I mean, the next major change as well is when they when the Duke of Forgill um, picks them up. He's got the stag's head exactly in the car. Yeah. yeah. Now, what, what do you think to that change? I, I do you think that makes more sense? To have it, to have the, 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 that was the reason for the Duke going there, as well as confronting. Um, yeah, because he doesn't necessarily know that the person from the oil company is going to be there, does he? No, exactly. So no, it does. Yeah, it does make perfect sense that he's dropping that off, and at that point, it, you also get the feeling that they've actually unit haven't actually been there that long. Yeah. Otherwise, they might have set up something a bit more permanent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I th- uh, but that was the thing because that was I mean, that was already there and established. Um, as you, and as you're quite right, you say unit weren't there, so there was no reason for that for, the, for them to spawn on the inn, was there? No. So yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. It does make a lot of sense. Um, but I mean, the other thing I noticed in this as well, and this is right in sort of the opening chapter, is that I think Terence Dick softens the Doctor or the characterisation of the Doctor a lot more because when he first meets the Brigadier, he slaps him on the back and compliments his kilt. Yeah, but in the TV version, because I remember, did, have you, did you watch the um, the documentary about the making of this? No, because they said when they first acted, I think it was John Levine said when they first acted with um, Tom Baker in Robot, he's very friendly and and everything. And they said when because unit has sort of been phased out, and they come back for this story, and he said he was like a different person. He was almost like very distant and didn't want to sort of. A bit standoffish, yeah, and it did sort of come across in his performance a little bit because he was angry quite a lot of the time with the brigadier and unit in particular. But in the book, the, the Terence Dix has sort of taken the decision to sort of make the doctor more familiar again with the brigadier. Well, he's just generally um, quite softer in it. So, I mean, I know what you mean because when he's talking to the brigadier about the facts of why have you why have you called us, called yeah. me back, and the oil thing. Yeah. Um, in the book, it's just the the brigadier says men have died, yeah. and the doctor just acknowledges, "All right, okay, well, let's find out what's happening," sort of thing. Yeah. Whereas in the book, he does sort of say, um, "You know, 
there's no the brigadier says no survivors. Don't you think we ought to solve this mystery before men die? Yeah. And it says for a moment the two men glared at each other while Sarah and Harry stood forgotten, holding their breath. And the doctor spoke in a very different tone. Yes, of course he said. You're quite right to send for me. Yeah. And it says the one thing about the doctor fault, Sarah. He never bothered about saving face when he was wrong. He admitted it, and it went on from there. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's one of the notes I'd made as well. She, she, you know, sort of like said that sort of thing. And so oh, that's what I like. There was, there was more sort of um, the the other characters' thoughts on what what they were witnessing, rather yeah. than just going from one thing to the next. There was it. You got a little bit more. You sort of went back a little bit, and so okay, Sarah thought about you know about that conversation and about the doctor, and you know, so it, it's it's just a bit more world building, isn't it? Yeah. Really, which is which is what I really like. Um, but the other the other big change as well is the um, Angus McRanald. He's a burly landlord in the book. But obviously, on the television, he's a wee Scotsman, isn't he? So. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, you get the feeling actually. Yeah, in the in the book, they're all, they're almost a bit frightened of him. Yes. Even you know the brigadier is not gonna actually go and confront him about the bagpipes or. Whatever, it's no, you know. No, exactly. No, we, no. In, no, in the TV, we we get Angus Lenny, don't we? So yeah, yeah a, a big difference. <laughs> you can't exactly call him a burly actor, really, could you? Angus Lenny, and actually, but... the only bit that's a bit softer with the Doctor, mm. I think, to the book, to the TV rather than the book, is the fact of when he tells. I don't think it's in the book, unless I, I've forgotten. I missed it and forgotten. He says about what the. Uh, the landlord's playing on the bagpipes about the oh, it's a, a, lament, a lament for the dead, isn't dead. it? Yes, which is sort of you know to the actually the doctor saying you know this is actually this is why we're here. Yeah, and not to forget that sort of thing. Yeah, it's because Sarah Jane's all quite bubbly and jokey and all that about exactly, it, and he sure? sort of brings her back down to earth yeah. again, doesn't he? Yeah, there's a lot that goes on in the in the in the book, isn't there? The sort of the character's been flippant, and another character will bring them back down again. Yeah. Because the Brigadier doing it to the Doctor, the Doctor doing it to, to Sarah. Um, I think that's why I like this book, to be honest. I think Terrence Sticks does, does some interesting some interesting things with it. Um, and obviously, sort of like, we're talking about cliffhangers. When the Zygon walks up behind uh, Sarah in the hospital after, after, after they found Harry, it says it gives her an electric shock. Which is now used for the new series as well, isn't it? The, the Zygons yeah. that shock you. But later on, it it goes on more about the Zygons of have a, a sting. Yeah. Which I think is an interesting thing to do, considering they're sort of like this sort of. Um, that's what I think about the Zygons. They're not really described that that much, are they? No, not necessarily. Just like they're they're a. You get a bit more description of the of the equipment and the control panels than you do of them yeah. themselves. I mean the most description you get is sort of like it's like a dome shaped head that sort of meets the shoulders and a and yeah. a claw like hand. Well the Zygons haven't got claw like hands. So I don't know if he's I mean, obviously well, at least one claw like hand. Yeah. I think it it sort of seemed to be that there was one claw rather than an perhaps a a, a a hand like they have on the T V. Well actually I mean it's, it's it's an odd thing that he changed that because I actually think that their hands actually are, are quite good for, for a model of, you know, a Makeup of that costume. time, yeah. 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 I think their actual hands were quite good, and I'm not quite sure why he needed to, Terence Dix felt he needed to 
to change that. Unless, of course, that was originally how... Well, I was about to say, was that how it was originally scripted? It. With not much description. And then, you know. and to be a claw, and then when the costume designers come along, they just thought, oh, I can't be asked to tell you that. I can do this. Oh, I, or rather, I can do this. This looks really good. This looks better. Yeah. So I'm going to do this. Yeah. Whereas it might well have been... Robert Bank Stewart was thinking, oh, I'll say a claw because that's easy for him to do. Yeah. They can't mess that up. <laughs> well, I don't know. It's easier for them to make that look alien than it is to them to come up with an alien hand. Although, I mean, it, it just was one of the iconic monsters, wasn't it? So oh, God, I don't think yeah. Probably yeah. had he, had he if, if he did write it as a claw, had he seen the the change anyway what they could have come up with i suspect he'd have gone happy with what they came up with i think so i think so um but obviously the the zygon that sort of shocks sarah um his sister lamont um who acts less suspiciously in the book i felt yeah because in the tv i mean it's obvious there's something wrong with her um and you sort of you could tell she's up to no good but in the book um i found it again Terence Dix did something with the character. She was less suspicious and a bit more open and friendly. Yeah, I mean, I mean the, the 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 whole in the book, the whole oh God, I haven't checked. He goes, I've forgotten to check the dispensary. Mm. It does actually come across as a more a more sort of like, believable line than it's, than, it's, than, it's, than it's done on the screen, which is I'll go and check the dispensary and marches off. Exactly when the book don't, version it, don't go down there. I'm going to go to the dispensary. So well, because the other thing, because when the doctor goes into the into the pressure chamber, he just casually walks in there. He's not hiding from Sister Lamont. No, because in the TV that he lurks around the Kuwait till she's gone. Then he goes. Yeah. Um. In, into there. Yeah, so, yeah. He's not. He's not suspicious of her. As yeah. Well, that, um. That so obviously at this point, so Harry is been taken aboard the the Zygon ship. Um, and Broton's slightly different. Well, not to say slightly different, but he's a lot more arrogant. Yeah. He expects all the humans to cower before the Zygon technology. And, and, and gets hot, quite upset at the fact that, that Harry, Harry isn't. Yeah. Um, I can't understand why Harry isn't amazed by, yeah. a, by an alien rather than... Exactly. And he's trying to make him... The, the whole thought process of, of, of Broton basically... Telling Harry what they're what the what the plot is really yeah. what they're what yeah, they're it, up to you know it still, um, yeah makes it a bit more of a a believable reason as to why yeah he's, he's trying to make him fear the technology and cower before yeah. him and which doesn't happen so um, and obviously Harry sees um, the Scarrison which fortunately in the book does look like the Loch Ness monster yeah. Yeah, I say it looked like the Loch Ness monster. It doesn't exist, say. but yeah, you know, it doesn't <laughs> exist. But who got photographic evidence to compare? Well, if it's based on a, on a, on a, was it a, a, a plesiosaur, then then fine. It, it looks like a plesiosaur in the book. So <laughs> yeah. Um, but the other thing as well, and I can't remember if this was this is because I was about I was going to say I watched this some time ago. And then I read the book sort of last week, so I've forgotten some of the things I was sort of reading. I thought, did that happen on the TV version? I, I, something I'm not entirely clear on, so maybe you can sort of pick me up on this. Um, but the Zygons seem to, and the Scarrison seem to have a sort of a, a, a codependent existence, because it says in the book that the the Zygons need the Scarrison's lactic fluid to survive. Yeah. So they're sort of like milking the damn things, aren't they? Um, was that in the TV version? I, I think there, there's. 
I'm now trying to think myself as to whether, whether I just imagined that because it was in the book. I'm sure Harry does say you're codependent and says, so if we destroy that... So I can't remember if, le- if lactic fluid, breastfeeding, basically, is the reason. Actually, so. <laughs> I don't think it actually goes into the explanation as to as to, as to what. No, I, I honestly can't remember. Because the, the, the next thing that's the, the, that is different... Um, so I must admit, yeah, reading that in the book was the first time that had actually occurred to me. Yeah. That the, which is something that's obviously been dropped. Obviously. Yeah, I can't, <laughs> I can't imagine... For their return in the... Yeah, sort of, yeah, <laughs> mentioning lactic fluid. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine him doing that back then. Um, but the other th- different thing as well, whilst Harry's on the, on the Zygon ship, is when he's shown uh, the captives in, 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 the, uh, in the bays. Yeah. Um, obviously, the TV version, you see Sister Lamont and the Caber um, in, you know, stand up in the bays, and you can't see it in the third one. Um, and it's obviously the, the reveal later when you see it's the Duke of Forgill. Um, but in the book... Harry, it mentions like Harry sees he sees Sister Lamont the Caber and the Duke of Forgill. Yeah, um, and I I preferred the TV version. It deliberately hides the Duke. Yeah, so you're not yeah, quite sure who the third one is. Because you know. well, not only that, it's it's the whole thing when they go to Forgill's castle. Mm. It's the the big thing is is when the Caber comes in with the ladder, isn't it? Because you then know oh that's the that's the Zygon, but then you don't know whether at that stage. I don't think you know whether the Duke is the. Um, I, oh, I don't think you do, do you? No. Or do you? I don't think you quite do. I think it's literally after that. Oh God! It's when. Well, so, sorry, uh, Josh and Steve. Well, we're encroaching on the memory cheats now. I'm very, very sorry. So. <laughs> uh... I don't think you do. I think I think that's the whole thing. You get the bit of music, don't you, when the caber comes in, which would be a bit random if <laughs> if you already knew she was talking to a Zygon anyway. So when you say a bit of music, was it like the sound of bagpipes? As he walks so, in? <laughs> but it was that sort of tension music, if you know what yeah, I mean. Exactly, yeah. I think the bagpipes do tend to bring tension to people's <laughs> Tension, like, yes. Yeah, tension headaches, I think. is the... <laughs> But... Um, Anyway, but obviously the next sort of um, bit is the you know the um, the the, the, the Scarrison marching across um, across the moors and everything, um, and they find the sort of like the the, the soldier that sort of trampled on, um, and when they, when they sort of find again this is where I might be wrong again because they obviously the doctor and the brigadier do go, do go and inspect the body. Um, in the book, the doctor's the, the brigadier's reaction. The book said, "Why did it have to murder one of my men?" Yeah. Does he say that on the TV version? I think he does, no. I, I, I couldn't remember. But again, I like the fact that they they heighten up that thing again about the Brigadier really does care for the men under his command. Yeah. So I just like that he just sort of, you know, he really regrets one of his men being senselessly killed like that. Why did it have to tread on him, basically? Yeah. Um, and I do like that. I do like that about the Brigadier. I mean, I quite like actually been talking about that with the, the, when they're put the sleep and whatever with the gas and what I quite yeah. like in the book that it just sort of they start just falling asleep mm. and the brigadier's not quite sure what's going on before yeah. he then falls over himself yeah because that was it um was it corporal palmer yeah I mean the book is quite a know-it-all isn't he <laughs> well there, there is I mean there, there's slightly you do get that in the in the tv where he's saying the yes Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That that's already been a, 
he does say at one stage that's already been established. Yeah. But yeah, it's, yeah, it's just the fact that everything that the brigadier's asking him, he's already done about five, five, five minutes ago. ago. Yeah. Exactly. And sort of, but in the, in the book, it's sort of the corporal palmer's like, oh, I've already done it. You know, so that's, that's what, we, what he's thinking internally as well. But um, yeah. but I mean, the next bit, and I think the, the one of the most famous, other famous things um, in the TV version is um, Zygon Harry. Yeah. Which... In the in the the TV version where he's hiding in the barn is probably one of the most creepiest things they've done with a. Okay, I know he's not he's not a companion, but you're not entirely. I think you you you, you honestly you do know who 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 it is. It's a Zygon, but the bit that's missing from the book is Harry lurking in the shadows. Yeah, which was done to such brilliant effect in the TV version because it's over very very quickly in the book, isn't it? Sarah finds him upstairs. He lounges at her with with the pitchfork, falls over. He actually falls through the trapdoor, doesn't oh, he? Yeah. Which is some going, really, to go straight through that. I mean, I think the the TV version works better because it's more like a um, like a, an open. It's an open floor, yeah. isn't it? It's a mezzanine can, level, isn't it? It is. Yes, that's the that's the word I'm looking for. Um, but just the fact he's lurking in the shadows. Yeah. With the, you know, um, looking. It's such a menacing scene. It really is, um, and you do sort of feel scared for Sarah at that point. Um, but in, actually, in the yeah. book, it's all it, the tensions decrease somewhat. I felt in the book on, on that scene. That is, but I think the build-up to that scene from the Zygon Harry arriving in the the office, yes, is much better. The fact that the the device that he's come for is locked in the drawer. Yeah, and he just pulls it open, doesn't he? And yeah. yeah, so it does because really in in the on the TV thing, it's only really when he pushes Sarah that you'd think, oh, she'd be suspicious. This isn't him. Yeah, um, but there's a lot more build up to that, isn't there? Because at that yeah. stage, she doesn't know. Sarah doesn't know that they can take the shape, does she? Because she doesn't see. No, she doesn't. Sister Lamont change at any stage. It's only, does it's she? only Harry that knows, really, yeah. isn't it? At that point, yeah. So for her to suddenly jump up and chase him is a bit more slightly contrived in the TV thing, but in the book it makes more sense. The doctor sent him to get it, but didn't tell him where it was. Where it was, didn't give him a key to the drawer. He didn't or... have the wound. No, that's the which other he thing. does on the TV. Um He does, yeah. He does, he does, you're right. You're right, he does, yes. Yes. Um which actually you'd have thought would be more likely to be that he'd have the wound, to be honest, because if they're making replicas from him Mm. They'd have only had him as a wounded body to make the. They would have done exactly, so it, it makes sense to have the the wound, doesn't For the it? The wound. So the book's yeah. slightly a bit with that, but I suppose that was trying to get the thing. And the fact that then she chases him out. Yes. You get, or you get the thing. The fact that no matter how disturbed Harry was, there was no way to push the woman over. No, absolutely um, not. Which is in the book, which is quite good, which I think is there. But then she chases him out, and then he runs into the two soldiers. Rather than actually how how he how they'd catch him up because she has to set off in a totally different direction. Exactly. He <laughs> <laughs> should have been long gone by then, which made more sense in the book. That <coughs> literally he ran into the two soldiers and then yeah they chased him. They from chased there. him. Yeah, it does make a lot more sense. Um, there's another little um, change as well. Is um, when Ang when they're sort of like they're looking for for bugs. Um, and the same thing about Angus is I'll keep a clean house and all that. But it's later on when he when he's checking the stag's head. And, yeah. the, eye, and the eye just drops into his hand. 
And that's when, he, that's when he, oh, there's the bug, and Sister Lamont walks in. But, but he, has, he has a sort of look, doesn't he, at it, and it moves. It I moves. Think. And then, then he goes up to it, and then, as it does on the TV, he pulls it moves. It, yeah. But yeah, he, he sort of tries to pry it out, doesn't he, when Sister Lamont yeah, comes in? It, on, on the in TV, the he's actually yeah. trying to take the whole head down, isn't he? Yeah. But then, as opposed to just but the obviously eye. Obviously, you see Sister Lamont has obviously removed the eye later on, but in the book, it just yeah. plops into his hand. Um, yeah. Which, I don't know, does, would that make any more sense? I don't know, really. I don't know. I, I, I did quite like from the fact that in the in the book, they on the TV, they didn't bother to actually remove the, the eye. You just suddenly get a close-up of the the stag's head with, with the hole. With the hole, yeah, the eye, the eye socket, yeah. And it's not mentioned until suddenly, actually, the Doctor says, or someone says, don't know, that, have you noticed have that? Have you noticed that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it does make more sense, actually. But um, but at this particular time, um, when this happened, the, doc- the Doctor, the Brigadier and Sarah are at the Duke, aren't they? At the Duke's um, castle. Yeah. Which um, I think, I think it's Sarah sort of says that you know she they she's glad they came in the daytime and not at night because it's like Frankenstein's castle. Yeah. Or something, which I thought was a nice little just a nice little detail to to put in like a spooky Highland castle just to you know just to add to the atmosphere. A bit but more. Yeah, this is this is just this is a bit more than just a stately home. Yeah, this exactly. Is, yeah, this is a a full blown castle. Yeah, um, but it was the Sarah Sense and the Doctor who's trying to goad the Duke into revealing he's a Zygon. Yeah, the fact that the Doctor doesn't disagree with the Brigadier about using weapons exactly to to, to bring an end to it. Yeah, because it was because that that's backed up later on, isn't it? When it's the um, it was, the, it was the Doctor's intention to tell the Duke of their plan to blow up the ship to force a peaceful resolution. Yeah. To try and make Broton think twice. Obviously, he doesn't because he thinks he's superior, basically. Yeah. Um, but then they sort of, uh, you know, so that, I thought that was a good little thing to do. And the fact, well. in, the fact in the book, it's Sarah's decision to stay. Yes, it is, isn't the it? Books as a which, reporter. The, which the Doctor wasn't happy with, was he? Wasn't happy with, but felt that at least. They'd be less likely to try and do something if, if you know, if they was trying to keep it quiet, or trying to keep that quiet, then she'd be safe. Exactly, because they like the doctor. Doesn't the doctor say later on, sort of, I've I've got this all wrong. Yeah, it, it doesn't sort of, it doesn't plan out or pan out rather um, as he um, as he envisaged. Well, well he's but... he's thinking that they may be trapped on Earth and are looking for a a, a, a solution to get out of it, a, mm. a peaceful solution. And it's then actually he suddenly realises, no, actually the Zygons don't want a peaceful solution. No, because at, at that point they find Angus dead, don't they? Yeah. Um, and, and then that just means basically if they're not bothered about who they kill at the, in the village, then they're not going to be bothered about whether they kill Sarah at the castle. No, that's right. So they have to get back. They have to get back, exactly. But there's another little nice little character beat for the Brigadier again. And, and again, I can't remember if this was in the TV one, or but I like it in the book anyway. Um it was the Brigadier's sadness at Angus's death. Yeah. Because he just said, if only we hadn't used this place as a as our um, HQ. Yeah. And again, it was that regret. Yeah. yeah, he felt responsible for him. Um, which, which again, I, I, I just... I don't, do, you, do you reckon that Terence Dix just understood the character of the Brigadier more than anybody else? Considering, I, cons- considering that was his time on the show, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah, he was basically part of the creative process for him, wasn't he? Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, I think he just, to be honest, I think he just gets the, well, 
the connection between the Brigadier, the Doctor, and Sarah Jane all together. Mm. I think that that's the thing that comes through on this, and where he he softens it back to probably more to to be perfectly honest, he probably takes it back more to a third Doctor relationship than perhaps as, as a fourth Doctor has relationships with other people. Yes, yes, because I, I know we we I know when we we um did our commentary for the three doctors and I said this was the beginning of the end for, for the Brigadier and I certainly under <clears throat> under Pertwee's tenure yeah. or the remainder of Pertwee's tenure after that the Brigadier was made out to be a complete buffoon but in this story he's not is he? No This, as you say this is our early early Brigadier again who, who's sort of quiet sort of willing to go along with the Doctor's sort of more, more outlandish suggestions of what, what might actually I- be going on and right. and is yeah and is is not com- at all phased at the fact that there are aliens and there no there's a monster and you know th- these these aliens could be shapeshifters and yeah exactly whatever yeah uh, I mean even to the fact of when they're talking about the fact they're being under surveillance and um, after Harry and that saying oh well, you know they can he, the brigadier gets very defensive about his men might yes. be accused of being traitors and they're saying well you don't know if one of them's been replaced but then when they turn around and say it could be electrical devices and the brigadier is suddenly back on home territory if you like and is is much more happier yes indeed he is yeah no i, I just i just Quite love that. i just love the way the brigadier is portrayed in this book yeah. i really do i really do um and also the next uh, i think the the brigadier's little speech to sarah um during the depth charge scene, is slightly different as well, isn't it? Yeah. Because isn't it? In, I can't remember which way, which way around it is now. Is it in the book? He's sort of like you know, he's the Doctor. I'm quite sure he'll, he'll have a plan, but he'll be off that ship. Well, I think isn't it in the book? He's more resigned to the fact. I'm oh, sorry, in the TV version, he's more resigned to the fact that Doctor's still on. Then he's gonna have to blow it up anyway. Um, Does he try? It's one or the other. He tries to reassure Sarah Jane a bit more. I think it's I, the two I, are different. The two are certainly different. But I can't remember, yeah. remember which way around it is. I mean, it's certainly the fact that when he does say to Sarah Jane about, "Oh, we have a plan," mm. and then about the fact that he's only gonna, uh, they're only gonna, you know, warning shots of, uh, above, yeah, to try and force them up. And I quite like in the book. Then it goes, but the brigadier doesn't realise what their plans are, and the fact that the ship just comes up and flies out is quite. Yeah, I think it's quite well described in the book. Well, actually, one thing I like about the fact that the, the reason they land in a in a quarry is because the ship's damaged, and that's yeah. the, that's the first place they can put down without crashing. And Which they again was an awesome explanation. An <clears throat> overhanging bit of rock. That's right. Yeah. So they can't be seen from the air, whereas in, actually in the in the book it's in plain sight. I saw yes. <laughs> oh, the TV yeah. version; it's plain sight. Hanging yeah. in the middle of the quarry. <laughs> I mean, although, although I mean, yeah, it's given that experience, but you do get the feeling actually that Robert Banks Stewart wrote this. This is this, this, this was very much a script written with the full view of what the BBC special effects people would be capable of. Isn't yes, it, it certainly that, is. Yeah, yeah. But, but let's sort of set it as a li- underwater, so it's hidden most of the time, and then we're, then when it surfaces, we'll put it in a quarry, <laughs> <laughs> and you're going to see half of it. Till it blows yeah. up, yeah, it's all over too quickly. So. I quite like the effect in the TV, actually. So I do actually, so, yeah. I think with, it's very well with, done. Of how they get actually that they're the size of the ship by doing the sort of perspective thing. Yes, 
you see them jumping out, small figures. Yeah, I think that's very well done, actually. I do like that. That's really good. Um, really, it was really clever. I mean, that's obviously more Douglas Canfield than yes. anything to do with what we should be talking about. But no, just obviously a ideal person at, at work, at working out how he wants to do it, how he can create a shot. Exactly. And he, well, yeah, he did that all okay. It was brilliant. Yeah. Really well done. I, I, mean, I know we're sort of meant to be talking about the book, but I just think the whole thing's well directed, to be honest. Yeah. It really is. Um, but going back to the book again, um, there's just a couple of other little changes, really. Um, and that's the one thing I liked actually was when Brotoms was made, was announced that you know he was, he was, he was going to make a speech to the ship. It's the Doctor Blue Raspberry, which I thought I, I, again, I like that. But is, is it Tom Baker? Um, I don't know. Yeah, it can be. I think. I yeah, I, I do he's, like. I he's do like just it. The, the, not liking. Anything officious, isn't it? Oh yeah, I mean, he's, know, he's a lot more flippant in, in the book, isn't he? Towards yeah. Proton, certainly is. Um, and and the other thing as well, um, which I was quite sort of surprised about, really, um, it just shows that Robert Banks Stewart was a, was a bit more forward thinking um, than Terence Dix. That the Terence Dix made the Prime Minister male in the book. Yeah, it was the TV version that the Prime Minister was female. So obviously, Robert Banks Stewart could see what was what was coming there, but. Um, why he did that? I might, again, maybe, maybe it's in the original shooting script. Yeah. That he was... Yeah. It, yeah that, that it perhaps was it, a, perhaps, perhaps it just became a joke on the... I don't know. When did Margaret Thatcher become leader of the opposition? <sighs> it may well have been just as they were shooting she was, that she was, she was about at that time, wasn't she? It may have been that she was sort of becoming favourite to be... It was being talked about as this woman, this could be the first woman prime minister. Yeah, that it was something that was being talked about on set, and so uh, it was decided, literally as they was filming, go on say that it's a woman. Yeah, yeah. But then, obviously, when Terence Dix does the book, he's just kept to the same. He's just kept to the script. Yeah, I think I think that's probably what happened there. To be honest, I suspect. Yeah, I suspect that may well have just been a. Almost an ad lib thrown in. Yeah, right. Or, the last, you know, like, last knock yeah. it was something topical to when that was being shot. Yeah, yeah, it could have been a, a, a Thatcher thing, couldn't it? Yeah. Probably right. Probably right. But uh, but after that, the, the the book doesn't really deviate much from the from the TV series, does it? No. The whole attack on, on London and everything, it's it's not really different. Um The only thing I I mean I'll... I like the fact that, you know, when they're, when they're looking for the um, homing thing. Yeah. But the fact that the doctor realises that it was his last attempt to kill him was to put it in his pocket. Yes. Which is explained a bit more than... A bit more than the doctor going, ah, here it is. It's, yeah. just, it's almost like in the TV series, it's just in the struggle, it fell into his pocket. Yeah. But the book is deliberate. He, he was sort yeah. of like, you know... The, the he la- wanted to make sure... Broughton wanted the last only, laugh was on only, him, you know. Yeah, not only did he want this destroyed now, but if it, if all these plans were ruined, he wanted to make sure that the Doctor went. Yes, indeed. As well. <laughs> the Doctor wasn't going to get out while it was attacking the building. It was no. going to attack the building to get to the Doctor. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, so that, that was a nice little change. But the, the one th- regret I do have about the end of the book, there wasn't a better goodbye for Harry Sullivan. No, I suppose... Well, I suppose you've just got to the point where... It wasn't meant to be a goodbye, was it? 
Well, it, I always, always felt that the, the TV version it was a bit of an anti-climax, wasn't it? They had all those adventures with the Doctor. They just said, "Oh no, I'll, I think I'll just stick to Intercity that time," and, and that was it. Yeah, there was no. I know now. Maybe I'm thinking it through. Um, modern eyes now, because any time a companion leaves, it's got to be a big, big event, hasn't it? Um, but it was done so matter-of-factly, was it? And and the book was the same. Yeah, there wasn't sort of like any sort of like pangs of regret from the doctor about Harry not accepting his offer to travel with him again. No, I mean, yeah, it, you just get the sort of the fact that that Sarah Jane goes with him just literally in the book because she can't because he is upset that nobody trusts no, him. No, trusts him. Yeah. Yeah. So feels she had, even though she doesn't particularly want to just get into the, she'd like to spend a bit more time on Earth. Um, and had the Doctor been saying he was he was off to go on further adventures, so to speak, she probably wouldn't have got into the TARDIS herself. No, probably not at that stage. No, but because it, he did convince her <laughs> that this is just going to be a short trip to London. Well, I think the other thing that Terence Six does in the book as well is, as we said, you know, about Sarah's thinking about things the Doctor has said and she was absolutely bang on the money. And I think what's what Terence Dick's trying to do was to show that Sarah Jane understands the Doctor. Yeah. You know, she knows she knows more about him than, than you know, than probably he would care to admit, let alone her. So And and there's, I think it, it, and there's bits where she's worrying about him. Yeah. So it makes sense that she goes off with him at the end, really. Yeah. You know, because she obviously they the two of them have got this connection. You know, so yeah. I, I think what 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 Terence Dix Dick, did throughout the book, I, I if that was the intention, it certainly come across like that for me anyway. But it made perfect sense. Yeah, it really did. It really did. But um, well, I think at the end of the day, would we recommend this book? Oh, definitely. I mean, certainly. I think this is actually a definite case where I don't know whether it's because the story is so strong, but. It's one of those where the TV doesn't doesn't disappoint and the, the book doesn't disappoint. No. No. It's slightly rare don't. to get one of those because sometimes one or the other doesn't quite give you the same feeling. No. I, I think because the TV version is so strong, the um the monsters, the Zygons, it's such a strong design. Yeah. Even though we we we've mentioned that the book doesn't really describe them at all, but because you already know what they look like, yeah, you don't really need that description. It, I think it's just pretty nice to have read it, but you already know what they look like. So all the time you're reading it, you know what these things look like and how they move, how they talk, you know. So it doesn't really matter at the end of the day, does it? I mean, and, and the funny, I mean, the thing is, the more you read the read the book, <clears throat> watch the episodes again, the more you, it's hard to believe that we've had to wait until the last few years mm. to actually get another Zygon story. I know. I know. You know. How they weren't used. I mean, I can almost sort of understand in the new series that you didn't want to keep. They wanted to bring their own monsters in. And That's you fair enough, yeah. Bring the, the really iconic ones back. But why in the um, original series, so we say, mm. the, um, they, they weren't used again after... Yeah. Terror I don't know of the Zygons. Why. I could never understand. No, me neither. Me neither. Mind you, if if um, they've been brought back in the way the Silurians and the Sea Devils were, probably a good thing to have left them well alone. Yeah. Actually, if you think of Warriors of the Deep. Yeah. Because they could have quite have easily figured into that one as well, really, couldn't they? So, 
Oh, they've been underwater again. But oh no, no, I think they're probably glad they left the Zygons where they were at that particular point. But oh. they'd even they'd even left it open on the fact that you know he'd said he'd signalled for his people to come, and it might take them years to hundreds of years to arrive. Yeah. So they'd even left that open, and it was never picked well, up. Well, I, well, you say that. I think this is where the new series has picked it up recently. Yeah, modern who's picked up because obviously I think these are the the ships that Broton signalled. Yeah, that are now living on Earth. So I think that's probably probably it. I know you had the ones coming through through the, the Time Lord paintings and everything. Yeah, um, but they didn't all come through from there, did they? So um, no. because there's meant to be sort of like you know thousands of them now, but. Um, yeah, anyway. Um, should we leave that there? Because it definitely gets a thumbs up from us anyway. Yes. Yeah, certainly go and read this book. It, it really is a, it's a, a really good read, this one. Um, okay, so that, that's another target novelisation done. So when we're back in a couple of weeks' time, uh, we're back to our Series 2 retrospective, aren't we? Yeah. Yes, and we all know what episode we're up to now, don't we? Yes. Yes. We're doing Fear Her. Hmm. Mm. <laughs> Mm. Yes. yes, okay. Um, looking forward to that one, Paul? About as much as I'd imagine I would, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I suspect most I think most people can work out how much that is. Oh, well, so, well, we'll find out in a well, couple... Well, we were slightly surprised by Love and Monsters, weren't we? We were perhaps, slightly surprised. Perhaps, we, we, perhaps, did, we did enjoy Love and Monsters, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. perhaps we're... we're we... Infused with this, I don't know. Mm. Okay, well, in two weeks' time, listeners, you will find out what we, what me and Paul now think of Fear Her. As, as... Infused as in dunked in hot water. <laughs> 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 oh, God, time will tell. Time will tell. Oh, God. So, anyway, there we are, there we are. So, that's what we're going to be doing in two weeks' time. So, that's something to look forward to, isn't it? It is. Isn't it just, isn't it just? Okay, everybody. So until then, it is goodbye from me, Phil. And goodbye from me, Paul. Goodbye. Listening to the Who's He podcast. Please visit our website at who's-he-podcast.co.uk. You can also follow us on Twitter at who's underscore he underscore podcast. And please also join the Who's He podcast Facebook group. The Who's He podcast is a member of the Doctor Who Podcast Alliance. Mm-hmm.